please turn in the Word of God to the first chapter of Romans this morning. And let us give our attention to the written revelation that God has given to us that will tell us of His revelation by creation. Far inferior to the Word of God, we have them both and more. Romans chapter 1, let me read to you verses 18 through 23. This is our goal for the day by God's grace. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Amen and amen. Amen. My dear brethren, there is part of me that is disappointed at our rate of progress. There is another part of me that is thrilled at our speed of covering this epistle. Let me show you what I mean by giving you a summary of what you ought to learn And what you ought to take home from these verses. Just six of them. Listen to me. I'll summarize it at the end of the day again. The Lord willing. First of all, we are told about the wrath of God in the first few words of verse 18. The wrath of God is a neglected subject. You will not hear about it nor think about it unless you humble yourself to God's revelation. You must take from this passage the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven. Number two, that we want to take from this is in the 18th verse as well. It says that God is going to pour out that wrath against all, and I emphasize the word all, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All their impiety by not giving him the glory that is due his name. All their immorality of breaking his commandments, he is going to punish in his wrath. All. So we need to take that away. The third thing I want to tell you is that we are accountable for truth. From verses 18 through 21, the words at the end of verse 18 are, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, they get the wrath of God. God holds us accountable for everything he shows us. If he is going to hold the world accountable for not recognizing him and submitting to him and worshiping him by a sunrise or a sunset, how much more are we going to be accountable for, for what you hold in your laps? Because he's given you his letter in writing to give you details about himself, yourself, the world, the future, sin and salvation, righteousness, truth and wisdom. We are accountable for truth. Four. Verse 19 makes it very clear that we should be sensitive to God's promptings. Because the world, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. You look at the natural creation and say it's not that clear of a message. It's clear enough for God to hold them all guilty. You've just been given a much clearer one. 
And I ask you this day, are you more sensitive to the promptings he's put in your life than the promptings he's put in their lives? He's given them creation and conscience and providence. He's given you creation, providence, conscience, and revelation in his Bible. How sensitive are you to your conscience? How sensitive are you to the preaching? How sensitive are you to the creation? How sensitive are you to God's providence? To his revelation, to his scripture. In verse 20, it tells us that so they are without excuse. All mankind is guilty before Almighty God. We must take that out of this passage so that we understand the point that the apostle is driving at. And that is to leave the human race condemned and in need of a power and a savior outside of themselves to make them righteous before God. Sixth, do you recognize God? In his creation. We should be sensitive to it, but do you recognize him? It says in verse 20 that the invisible things of God are clearly seen. Clearly seen in the creation. Do you clearly see God in the creation? Do you clearly see God in the providence in your life? Do you clearly see God by your conscience? Do you clearly see God in the Bible? We need to recognize him. He declares that he's made himself clear. You better see him and respond accordingly. Verse 21 makes this point to us. He is jealous for his glory. Our God is jealous. His name is jealous. And that jealous is spelled with a capital J. God is jealous for his glory. If you defraud him of any of his glory, it will be ill and evil for you. Because God will judge you because he is jealous of his glory. He shows his glory in the sunshine, according to Psalm 19 and according to Romans 1, 20 and 21. And he holds men accountable for not giving him glory for that degree of glory. But he has shown us so much more. We better give him glory. And you better not give that glory to anything else. I am not too worried about you having a Buddha in your backyard. But I am worried about you thinking too highly of your family. Too highly of your spouse. Too highly of your physical attractiveness or physical fitness, too highly of your house, too highly of your job, too highly of your education, all of which amount to a heap of dung. Where are you giving glory? He is jealous for his glory. Number eight, he expects thankfulness. Verse 21 says, neither were thankful. I know it's only three words in these six verses, but if you're not thankful, you're going to bring the wrath of God down upon your head because he expects us to be thankful. I'm telling you, brethren, every point that I'm making deserves a sermon in itself, so I'm not going too slow. I'm wondering if I'm going too fast. We're going to preach the Bible through the spectacles of the epistle to the Romans. If you will look and meditate, this is what I get from meditating on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I'm overwhelmed by all the truth that is there for us. Number eight is he expects thankfulness. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you that you give thanks in everything. First Thessalonians 5.18. The ninth point I want to make. When he says neither were thankful in that 21st verse, he is referring to God's goodness by his providence in your life. He is going to refer to this again in the fourth verse of chapter 2 when he says, Oh man, don't you know that the riches of God's goodness are to lead you to repentance? Are you recognizing God's goodness, giving thanks for them, but then beyond thankfulness, realizing what God has been good to you and how he's been good to you and the riches of that goodness are to lead you to repent of your sins? That's why he's been good. He has not been good to tell you that you've been doing well. He's been good to lead you to repentance. Number ten. Your imagination is dangerous. And every single one of you and I must rule our imaginations lest we ever let them interpret the word of God, apply the word of God, or give us an agenda that is contrary or different from the word of God. Your imaginations are vain and they're dangerous. And it's where all false religion comes from. It comes from man thinking. Stop thinking and start thanking. Stop thinking and keep thinking. 
Stop thanking and die thanking. It's the best thing we can do is just to be thanking God for all that he's done for us instead of thinking. I want to tell you, a better mind than yours has already done all the thinking. Amen. And it's the God of heaven. We don't need thinking. We need thanking. Your imagination is dangerous. Amen. Number 11. Blinding is horrible. And it's described in verse 21 when it says their foolish heart was darkened. When God blinds you, I just want to let you know, you won't know that God has blinded you, but we will know. That is horrible. You will never know when God has blinded you. Your heart will deceive you into thinking that what you're doing is right and you're, you're acceptable before God and everything is fine. But you will not be that way because God will have blinded your heart. Their foolish heart was darkened. That's a passive verb construction, meaning that there was a power outside themselves that darkened their foolish hearts. And when did it start? They became vain in their thinking and God did the rest. If you ever raise up your thoughts against God, He'll do the rest and blind your heart. And that is a great danger that we want to avoid. Twelve. Verse 22 tells us that we better hate any thoughts of arrogance or wisdom and of ever boasting of such a thing. We have nothing. We are nothing. I love to write these inquirers about our church and describe in dirty, nitty-gritty detail just what we are, because that's all we are. We are ugly sinners saved by grace, and when they come to see us, we're going to pray to God that they won't have their faith overthrown by seeing so many warts and imperfections among us. Amen. And that's the way we always ought to talk about ourselves. We are nothing. We are the nothings of this world. I've written it this past week. If you want to come and see the nothings of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, come and see them. But that's what we are. Because there's danger in verse 22. And this is professing themselves to be wise. What did it bring upon them? God turned them into fools. If you'll say that you're a fool and believe it, God will make you wise. Like he did Solomon. Number 13. Images are an abomination to God. And we don't allow any kind of images. We took the steeple off this church. We don't allow pictures in our church. We don't worship anything. You know, the Catholics say we don't worship our statutes. We worship God through them. God does not know the difference. Because Israel said the same thing. Aaron made a golden calf and he said, Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. Jehovah. God didn't care. They were worshiping that stupid golden calf. We don't have anything to do with images. We don't want crosses. We don't want crucifixes. We don't want pictures of Jesus coming out of a tomb or of a tomb. We don't need those things. We hate image worship. Therefore, we hold to the Bible's Ten Commandments and not the Roman Catholic version of the Ten Commandments. The Roman Catholic version of the Ten Commandments finds the commandment against graven images and deletes it. You say, well, then they end up with nine commandments. Oh, no. They take the commandment number ten, which is thou shalt not covet and make it two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house and the rest of his stuff. Because they have to keep ten, because they don't want to get in trouble with the mathematically inclined. But we hate image worship, because it's an abomination to God. We don't want anything to come in. We don't want green trees in our houses. We want to be careful in every respect. I love swords and knights in a certain little foolish fleshly way. Swords and knights. Chivalry. But do you know what? I always have to be very careful about this. And I don't even do this anymore. But do you know the, the tales of King Arthur? Who, who is a prime figure in the tales of King Arthur? Merlin the Magician. If it has Merlin the Magician in it, burn it in hell. There is no such thing, except in pagan devil worship. Everywhere we look, we need to make sure that we are not associating ourselves or getting closely entwined or thinking upon or embracing or allowing or by silence endorsing idolatry, image worship, paganism, but principally idolatry. There's 1.1 billion Catholics that have statues of Mary everywhere. Oh, we don't worship Mary. Listen to their praying. They'll pray ten times to Mary for every time they pray to God. Right. Is that right, Magdalena? 
Hail Mary ten times and one Our Father on the rosary. There's five big beads for Our Father prayers, and there's 50 little beads for Hail Mary prayers. Do you remember? Or have you forgotten? Hey, you forgotten? Praise the Lord. Some of you, that's wonderful. They don't pray to Mary. They don't worship Mary. Listen to them. Who is the co-redemptress, redemptrix in Catholic theology? It's Mary herself. Right. We are, we have been saved from so much, but we hate image worship. That was number 13. Number 14, from all of that, we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has given verses 16 and 17 to us. That God, by His power through Jesus Christ, clothed us in His righteousness to save us from everything in these verses. Because if the truth be told, we are in these verses as thoroughly as anyone else, but for the grace of God. So what do we do with Romans 1, 18 through 23? There's 14, at least, there's probably lots more. And if the Lord lets me live long enough and I preach through this epistle again, maybe there'll be 24. But right now there's 14 points of lessons that ought to be applied to our lives that come out of the truth revealed in these verses. Let's quickly look at these verses by God's grace. We're in verse 18. Last Sunday we took two services, two sermons for the words, for the wrath of God is revealed. But oh, they're good verses. The wrath of God is not preached anywhere else or in very, very few places. And it's revealed, and it's revealed in all kinds of ways. And we looked at many of those different kinds of ways. But it says it's revealed from heaven. I want to tell you that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Not in the sun that's in the heaven. That doesn't reveal enough of the wrath of God. The revelation of God's wrath is not the same as the creation revealing His existence. We've got two revelations taking place here. The first one is His wrath being revealed against those who don't submit to the revelation of the creation. Please see the distinction. I'm not going to take the time to belate the point, but it's there. It's revealed from heaven. The things that happen on earth are not the result of second causes or chance. The things that happen on earth are the result of decrees made in heaven. When Nebuchadnezzar was told what was going to happen to the mightiest empire and the most glorious king on earth, he was told that a watcher had come down from heaven and had declared the decree of what God had said about that king in his arrogant pride. So when it says from heaven, it means that it is determined at the throne of God in the eternal counsel of God and comes down by divine decree upon men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Secondary causes mean you blaming someone else. If a nation were to overthrow America in the next 20 years, we do not blame that nation or get all caught up in that nation doing it. We know, as we just sang, how that every day His will is revealed to us in the mysterious ways that God moves. We would know that God decreed in heaven, the independence of the United States is over. And there isn't an army or a general, or a president, or a body politic on earth that can stop his decree, as Nebuchadnezzar well found out. It comes down from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven. It is the God of heaven that rules in the kingdoms of the earth. If you read the book of Daniel, constantly he's referred to as the king of heaven and the God of heaven because his decrees against men come down from heaven because that's where God dwells, that's where God's eternal counsel has made the decisions that affect us in human history. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We already went over last Lord's Day how it's revealed. It's revealed in Scripture, Old Testament and New. It's revealed in creation. It's revealed in providence. It's revealed in the catastrophic events that God has hurled against this earth already. But remember, men are willingly ignorant of these events. They refuse to retain them in their knowledge so that they can get rid of such a terrible God so that they can live according to the dictates of their own conscience. This world is stupid, rebellious, and blinded. They're talking about global warming. We've got a jet stream right now that keeps cold air north of the Hudson Bay. And right now that jet stream is sitting over Alabama and Georgia. 
If you're not you, if you're not familiar with the map of the North American continent, Alabama and Georgia are just a few miles from the Hudson Bay. There was a nine, there was an eight-hour freeze in Orlando last night from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. All the orange growers, the ones that knew the God of Heaven, were on their knees begging God for mercy because the temperature in Orlando was under 32 degrees for eight hours. That's not good for oranges. Global warming. They're idiotic, and all of you children learn to grow up and know how stupid they are. When I was a child and I got the weekly reader, remember the weekly reader? You know what the weekly reader used to tell us little kitties back then? There's going to be a new ice age coming. It was warning us about an ice age. Now it's global warming. We're setting records all over the country and all over the world. You know all this. We've said it all before. But brethren, the wrath of God is revealed. And it's coming down on men such as this, from heaven, against all ungodliness. Now, we have two descriptions here of men that are going to receive the wrath of God, the ungodly and the unrighteous. When they're together like this, we might want to look for a slight distinction in the two terms. Ungodly, let's describe as impiety, meaning they don't give God the glory that he deserves. They're ungodly in the sense that they do not honor God for who he is and treat him by their worship In the way that he deserves. They're ungodly. They have no sacred, holy honor for God. Unrighteous is they don't keep his commandments. They're immoral. So it's impiety and immorality. They'll live any way they want to according to their lusts and not keep his commandments. But God's wrath is revealed in the Bible, in God's providence against the nations. And it's from heaven where those decrees were uttered. And it's going to come down on every bit of impiety, every bit of ungodliness, when we do not worship God and accept Him and therefore live in a godly way, and when we break His commandments and live unrighteously. God is jealous and His wrath will smoke against those who even flirt with competing gods and live in an ungodly way. He calls it spiritual adultery from one end of the Bible to the other. And unrighteousness... God is righteous and He hates and He's going to judge every act of unrighteousness. From disobeying parents, to oppressing or ignoring widows, to Lot's wife looking back when God told her not to look back, to losing your virginity outside of marriage, to talking against government, to religious modifications in God's worship, to mocking a prophet and picking on him for his bald head, to the hypocrisy of offering a gift in the church and pretending it was actually greater than it was, to frivolous use of his ordinances like the Lord's Supper at Corinth. These are examples mainly taken from God's own people. Unrighteousness, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The angels have already been dealt with. They are reserved in chains to everlasting destruction. But let's get that last clause. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Brethren, let's, let's be clear about the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity, we do not say, we do not believe that man's mental faculties no longer work. We don't say that he cannot see physically. He can see physically, and his mind can work enough that God can hold him guilty for looking at a sunrise and not choosing to humble himself before God. That's holding the truth in unrighteousness. Because the only truth that is intended by these words is the truth of verses 19 through 21. It's the truth of what can be seen in the creation of the world. That's the only truth under consideration right now. How do we know that? Because of the next two words. Or the next word in verse 19. Because is going to explain what it is for men to hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. That's the truth that they're holding. God's shown it to them. He's made it manifestly clear, and they hold it. You say, well, what is that truth? Verse 24. 
The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That is what we're talking about. Don't, don't go running anywhere and don't let anyone else take you anywhere out of the last clause of verse 18 of Romans 1 than to understand that it's talking about the knowledge of God and His existence from the creation of the world. That is all that is intended there. It is not a lesson to the churches of Jesus Christ, although we are going to draw that secondary application about us having the truth presented to us and us not living righteously, will be held accountable by a greater and higher standard than the world because we were given a greater and higher degree of truth. This is the truth of the natural creation. If you can't see that, then you need to read the passage some more because it's, it's just as obvious as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And it's no more difficult than 2 plus 2 equals 4. The truth in the last part of verse 18 is the knowledge of God's existence by the creation and the knowledge that God is glorious by the glorious nature of His creation and that He ought to be given glory. That He has a Godhead and eternal power and He ought to be submitted to and sought by men instead of ignored or rejected. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Total depravity does not say our eyes, these eyes, do not work. Total depravity, we do not believe, means that our eyes connected to our minds are incapable of seeing something incredibly glorious like that huge sun that's shining in our sky right now and not recognizing that it had a Creator who's greater in glory than it. Total depravity is not in the mind as much as it is in the heart. It's the affections of man. When Adam sinned, he still knew there was a God. He still knew where God walked, and he still knew where he could go and try to hide from God, though that was really foolish. He still knew that he was naked. He knew a lot of things. He held a great deal of truth. But you know what? His heart had been corrupted, and he had died in the day that he ate the fruit thereof, so that he tried to hide his guilt and shame by his own efforts of righteousness through fig leaves sowing, And then he tried to hide in the trees of the garden so God couldn't find him. Ever done that before? You know, where do people today hide themselves? They hide behind drugs. They hide all sorts of places, trying to hide from God. What else did he do? When God confronted him, he blamed his wife. Make your own efforts at covering up up your guilt and shame so that you can feel good about yourself. Go hide from God and and believe that God is watching us from a distance, as some sweet little ass sang. And three, blame somebody else for your sins. But he knew all about God. He had such an intimate knowledge of God. But what had changed? This thing right here. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The mental faculties... His pagan, reprobate children could invent organs and were artificers in brass. Their fingers still worked. Their minds still worked. They could understand metallurgy and other sciences about metals. Okay? Don't get confused. And if you, if you, go, if you go out there on a limb and start talking about man's mental capabilities being destroyed by sin, somebody's going to make an idiot out of you. It's the heart, it's the affections, it's the choices, it's the rebellion. Man is able to know that there is a God, but he makes this choice. I'm not going to submit to him. Adam made that choice. He looked at Eve's naked navel and decided that that was more attractive than the God of heaven. He made a choice. As soon as he had sinned, he made another choice. Instead of repenting and asking God to cover this guilt and shame that I feel for the first time in my life, I'll cover it by my own efforts. Instead of running to God and begging for peace and mercy, I'll go hide in the trees of the garden. Instead of blaming myself for being a fool and asking God to forgive me, I'll blame Eve. That is what has happened. He knew God. He knew God's voice. He knew he better answer. Just go look at the, the, con- the conversation that took place there. I'm trying to explain this to you because I've been surprised by questions about the words who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The natural man is capable of a great deal of truth, but he refuses it and he chooses to consider it foolishness because it's spiritually discerned. Now we're talking about the things of the Spirit of God concerning Christ. Men are not walking around like zombies with nothing going on upstairs. It's going on upstairs, and they're, they're all able to realize that there's a Creator God. 
But they make a choice from their heart because their affections have been turned away from God. They hate God, they resent God, and they're angry about it. They will not submit themselves to God. This is total depravity. If Lazarus were to have come back from the dead, they would have been excited. It would have been major headlines in all the papers that Lazarus had come back from the dead. They would be able to figure out that, yes, this is indeed Lazarus that came back from the dead. But when it came down to the bottom line, will you worship the Lord Jesus Christ because of this? Not on your life. Right. Why? Because he won't let me have the third wife that I have now because I married her because I just didn't like number one and two. The Pharisees want a divorce for every cause as one example of a thousand who hold the truth. I hope that was helpful. Consider the devil. Does the devil know there's a God? Is the devil depraved? I mean, is he slightly depraved? Does he know there's a God? Does he know him well? Does he know his scriptures? Is he afraid of what's coming? Does he know what's coming? Does he know it well? He knows all that. Well, what's the problem? In his affections and desires, he's full of rebellion against the God of heaven. That is the issue. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Men are able to know that there is a creator God. This is the general proposition of truth that God's giving us right now in our study of anthropology. Do you want to understand man? Do you want to understand man's psychology? It's given to us right here. There is enough revelation out there in that sun that men know there is a creator God. He has eternal power and a Godhead. Thus saith the Lord. Whether you can figure that out or not, with all my help, I'm sorry for you. It's obvious. Right. You say, but what, where are all these atheists coming from? That's what they're telling you with their blustering mouths. Right. Bring them to the brink of death and you'll find out how atheistic they are. You know, there's sayings about soldiers and prisoners on how they get so much religion when they're in a foxhole or in a cell. That's where they find religion. That's because they're scared. But that isn't real religion. That isn't the fear of the Lord. But they know there's a God. That's why they call on him. Let me give you a few more examples. I've given you the devil. He knows all about God. He knows what's coming. But he, can you imagine the blindness and the rebellion of that heart to know that he is going to tor- that God is going to torment you, but there is no repentance? You say, that is incredible to even try to comprehend. Every sinner does that, and you would be doing that if it wasn't for the grace of God. Right. You would be thinking you could get away with it with your fig leaves and you hiding in the trees and you blaming someone else. It's amazing today. 50-year-old people go to psychologists to find out why they can't hold a relationship. I've been divorced four times. I don't get along with anyone. And they probe and they pry and they hypnotize and they drug. And they find out that, oh, Uncle Joe exposed himself to her when she was four years old. So what? They blame someone else. All the time. For those of you that have to take psychology classes today and sociology classes and other classes, this is the answer. Look at our little outline, the textbook of textbooks. This Bible tells us where sin comes from. That didn't cause anything to that little girl. Nothing. Grow up. Forgive the offender. This is what Jesus would say. Forgive the offender and go on and live your life. Don't blame somebody else 46 years ago for your dysfunctional rebellion and odiousness at the age of 50. Enough on that. The point I'm trying to make is they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Adam did it. The devil did it. Israel did it. Did Israel know about God? What would happen to Israel? Did Israel know God? Did God walk with them? Was there a pillar, was there a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud? Did he open the Red Sea? Did he feed them with manna? Did he bring water out of a rock? Did he do all those things? Then why did they worship idols in the wilderness for 40 years? Because they rebelled. Because they didn't want to submit to his rules for their life. And he had a few. All of them were good and gracious and helpful to their lives, but they rebelled. That is total depravity. And brother, it's in you and it's in me. And if it's not for the grace of God of putting on the new man, but letting the old man live, you're as depraved as the devil, Adam, and Israel. Lord God, help us who hold the truth in unrighteousness. How will evil and profane men call on God when they're in trouble? 
Did you hear how many praying people were in the streets of New York City on September 11th, 2001? I start to talk about the, the name of God. They're singing God bless America on the cap, on the capital steps of our nation. Where did all that come from? I'm going to tell you, they know there's a God. Do they ever recognize Him in any other way in their lives? No. Do they legislate stuff that is totally contrary to God? Yes. Do they use His name in vain as soon as they get away from that, those steps and the television cameras and the bright lights that are going to get them a few votes if they'll sing God bless America? Yes. Do you understand this? Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? There is a God in heaven. He has eternal power and He has the character of God. That's his Godhead, because that's what verse 20 is going to tell us. Consider that idolatry proves my point. Why does anyone worship a statue? Why did the Philistines worship Dagon? Because they were bored and they wanted to give stonemasons something to do? Or do they know there's a God that controls their lives, but they refuse to submit to the one of heaven, and instead they would put it in a stone statue called Dagon. Idolatry proves that all men know about God, or they wouldn't have religion. I'm sorry, and if I sound too upset about this, I just I don't understand the difficulty. And what I fear is, and I hope that I am not too guilty of this, is teaching you total depravity too far. That does not mean that man is only somewhat depraved. What it means is his mental faculties are fine, which makes him all the more guilty. Right. Do you understand? Yes. If man's mind is so messed up that he can't think, and that's what they accuse us of sometimes when we present total depravity to them. Well, then man isn't responsible for, oh, they are without excuse. Right. They are fully responsible because their mind works all well enough. They, listen, they're discovering a hundred species a day. They are discovering more of God's creation every single day. Is that helping them get closer to God? We are in the middle of an information explosion. You can find out as much, about as much as you want to know on almost any subject on the Internet. Is that helping them get closer to God? Are you kidding? They hate God and they're trying to eradicate His knowledge from the earth out of rebellion, not out of mental incapacity. Their mental capacity, they're able to, God turns, uses their minds to give us witty inventions that are fabulous. But they will not humble themselves to God. And brethren, let's just be honest with ourselves. Don't we know that this is exactly the problem in our own lives? That we fully know God and what He wants out of our lives, but there's something in us that just rebels and wants to do things our ways. Am I talking a language that the rest of you are wondering what's wrong with your pastor? I know God, and I know what He wants at a much higher level than they do. And I still say, I'm a, I'm a pretty righteous guy with my fig leaves. God's going to overlook this little thing that I'm keeping in secret, and I'll blame my wife. Sorry, Sherry. Do we all understand that about ourselves? And you can understand the passage. There's much more that could be said. I, I, I'm going to keep moving today by the God's grace. Uh, I, I got to listen. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God's going to hold us accountable. That's them holding the truth. Evil women, all men, the Gentiles, the human race, mankind, generally considered under a general proposition of truth, have the knowledge that there is a God, but they live unrighteously. They do not humble themselves and hate sin and want to please that God. They do not fall on their knees and beg for that God to come to them and reveal himself to them. When a man falls on his knees and begs God to come to him and reveal himself to him, you know that you've got a regenerated man because only a new man would make that cry. And that cry is never lost in this vast universe when it comes from regenerate man. The eunuch, Cornelius, Rahab, you name them, the Bible's got them, the Lord heard them. When preachers minimize, euphemize, or compromise the truth of God's wrath against sin, it leads men to hold the truth in unrighteousness. 
which ought to be opposed by all our might to exalt the wrath of God, to get men to fear Him, so that we can persuade men like Paul did, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Stand in awe and sin not. It doesn't say stand in comfort and sin not. It says stand in awe and sin not. Look at Ezekiel chapter 13 at a verse, or or listen to me read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 22. This is against preachers, prophetesses, to be specific, in this particular case. Ezekiel 13, 22. Look what a ministry does that minimizes the wrath of God. Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. The Joel Osteens and the others that preach this syrupy, seducing doctrine of peace and comfort and prosperity, no matter how you live, is wickedness. And this verse tells us two horrible things that come from it. First of all, let's get the second one first. The second one is, the hands of the wicked are not deterred. There's no deterrent in that preaching from living any way they want. There's nothing that will turn them back because the wrath of God isn't taught. In this particular case, it's God's judgment upon the Jews. And yet the prophetesses were saying, there's going to be peace. By promising them peace, even while they were living ungodly lives. The Lord loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what I mean. The second thing it does is it causes the hearts of the righteous to be sad because they don't see any judgment upon wicked men. So they're crying, where is the God of Elijah? They don't see enough of it. They don't hear enough about it because those portions of the Bible are not preached. They have no no cause to rejoice in their salvation because, hey, everybody's going to be saved. Peace is coming to the whole nation. I want to tell you something. The fastest growing ism in theology, right now, is universalism. That the whole human race is going to be saved. It's unbelievable. The number of men that are still living, that in their younger days, preached hell fire, literally. And that the ungodly and the wicked were going to hell. Now have them get into heaven by all sorts of means, and they're all going to get there. Hell is just... A bad time in life. Hell is you not having enough self-esteem. Oh, yes. It's truly perilous times when pleasure-mad Christians have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, as we have learned. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. They know there's a God. They know that He expects more, and they live unrighteous lives. See, the whole purpose of this argument is this simple. Paul wants to get us all totally condemned so that we have to have a Savior outside ourselves. There can't be any cooperation or assistance from man given to God to help save him. It's got to come from outside himself. So he's saying, even when I give man truth, he holds that truth, he understands it, I make it clear to him, I make it manifest, it's plain, he grasps it, he knows it, he still lives unrighteously. Please remember this, because as we get to chapters 3 and 4, it's like falling off a log. Because Paul is cutting off all avenues. It doesn't matter whether it's creation, providence, conscience, or scripture. They'll rebel against all four if they have a chance. If I give them all four, they rebel against all four. If I give them three of those, they rebel against all three. Because that is total depravity. And until God changes our hearts, we will never believe on him. You can't offer justification to this kind of a man and have him rejoice over it. You've got to give him a new heart and a new spirit to discern and perceive that that is a wonderful and a good thing and that he wants to thank God for saving him against himself and against his own will. Brethren, the doctrine of justification starts right here in the way that we are condemned and the extent to which we are condemned. Oh, brethren, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, we are accountable for truth. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. We have been given so much more than the bare creation. Lord, have mercy upon us. And Lord, stir us up by your spirit. And Lord, make us go in the way of your commandment. And Lord, incline our hearts away from covetousness and toward thee. O Lord God, have mercy upon us. Hold us back from presumptuous sins, lest they have dominion over us. 
Show us our sins of ignorance, lest we sin against thee in those ways that we do not see. Verse 19. Why is this wrath of God revealed from heaven against men who hold the truth and unrighteousness? And what is that truth? Verse 19. Because this is why God is angry against them. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. I don't need to explain those words. The word manifest, let me explain that one. I've done it many times to help you understand this older English word that we don't use this way too many times, but we do have an example. There is a manifest on every ship and every truck, and I'll bet every train. There is a manifest somewhere that tells and lists everything, the details of what is inside, so that you don't have to go through and take an inventory of every single box. You know what you're carrying by the manifest. In the cargo hold of a ship, it's called a manifest. And if you'll remember that, it, it reveals all the details of the things not open to view. And God has revealed the things not open to view. Is he going to say that in the next verse? For the invisible things? Please. I hope you're reading this epistle enough to know the verses without even looking down. It reveals the details of the things that are not open to view so that you can know them. So in verse 19, God is saying, I, these men hold truth and they hold it unrighteously because they live unrighteous lives even though they know things about me. And he, he, he's explaining that in verse 19 because this is why I'm going to punish them. This is why I am holding them accountable for holding truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Now, not everything that can be known of God. We don't even know everything that can be known of God because we're finite creatures and we're going to know more of it when we get to heaven. And the Bible shows us a whole more, much, a great deal more about God than does the natural creation. But what we're talking about is the things that can be known from creation because verse 20 is going to tell us that is the amount of knowledge that he's communicated. It's a, listen to these words. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. Right here. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Sunrises and sunsets, movements of the moon, the stars, all of that communicates knowledge that there is a God, and that's the knowledge they hold, that's the true knowledge that they hold, and yet they go ahead and live unrighteously, like Adam, like the devil, like Israel, and like even profane and evil men admit when they call upon God in the day of their terrors, and like all idolaters admit when they worship a God. Do you know how superstitious Greece was? They had an altar to the unknown God in case they had missed one. And Paul said, well, I know one that you don't know about, and him I'm going to declare unto you. And they didn't like what he declared about that one, because that one had raised up Jesus from the dead so that he could come back and judge the philosophers and the philosophy of Athens. But two did. Dionysius and Tamara got up and walked out. To follow the Apostle Paul. What made the difference? They had a higher IQ than the others? Hardly. Probably lower. So that God could deal with them and would deal with them. God is not impressed by your high intellect. It comes slightly short than his. He can hold your nostrils shut for 45 seconds and your IQ starts to go down real fast. Oxygen deprivation, you poor little thing. And if he holds it for two minutes, you hit zero. I love the God of heaven. He's the one that said that. I didn't make that up. He said, your breath is in your nostrils. If we don't keep forcing oxygen up those two holes on your face, that ugly little downward turned snooter of yours, if we don't force oxygen up it, your intelligence disappears. Bless the God of heaven. He's our wisdom. Has Jesus Christ been made unto us wisdom? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for in him dwell all the riches of wisdom, treasures of wisdom. Verse 19, because this is how they hold the truth and unrighteousness, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. God has clearly made obvious to them his existence, for God hath showed it unto them. This is a proposition about the human race and about sinfulness and about condemnation that we want down pat and make sure we understand these clauses and verses. Verse 20 explains verse 19. For the invisible things of him, that is the things that can't be seen directly about God. Do you know why? 
Why they can't be seen directly? Because God is invisible. God is a spirit. God is invisible. You can't see God. You never will see God. What would you see? He's a spirit. You say, well, Abraham saw some man back there. in the Oh, yes. And Moses saw a burning bush. Which one do you want in heaven? And John the Baptist saw the, a dove descending from heaven. Which one do you want in heaven? Those are just forms that God took upon himself so that you'd have something for your little reflectors that are around your snooter to see. That's not God. God is a spirit. He just appeared in those bodies. Those bodies dissipated back into thin air where they were created from. Angels don't even have them. Angels are spirits. If an angel takes on a body for Mary or Joseph to see them, it's just to help them out to know which direction to point their snooter. Otherwise, they'd be going around in circles wondering where the voice is coming from. Don't, get, don't make the Bible complicated where it's not complicated. It's complicated enough where it is complicated. But this is not where you make it complicated. God is invisible and you'll never see Him. Do you know what you're going to see of God that's worth the whole, his, whole eternity? You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the express image of God. And in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Because do you know what is really God? It is glorious, beautiful, holiness, and character. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prayed to God and said, show me your glory. Oh, he wanted to see God's glory. And God said, no man can see me and live. But go ahead, stand on that rock, and I'll let you see my backsides. Now, I'm going to par- This is good reading. Stand on that rock over there, and I'll let you see my backsides. Then what did God do? He split the rock. He split the rock, and so that Moses was down in a cleft of the rock, and God put his hand over Moses' face so that Moses couldn't see. And then God passed by before him, and after God had got far enough, this parade had gone far enough past him, He pulled his eyes up, and he saw the backsides of God. But he didn't see anything. He heard something. The Lord, the Lord God Almighty, merciful, forgiving sin and transgression, and rewarding those that hate him to their face. It's found in Exodus chapter 34. That's God. And if you don't like that, it's okay. But I charge you to repent before that great God. He is a merciful and long-suffering and great being. And you ought to fall on your face before Him. And that's His glory. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the epitome of all those things. Graciousness, mercy, long-suffering, forgiveness, and violence against His enemies that hated Him. He destroyed that city 40 years later. All of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, For the invisible things of Him... That is the invisible things of God, because God is an invisible spirit, and you can't see Him, but God has made them manifest to us by the objects He has created. For the invisible things of Him, that is God's invisible being, is seen, is clearly seen, from the creation of the world. That's not a time prepositional phrase, that is a source prepositional phrase, meaning that God's creation of the world reveals His glory. God's creation of the world shows His invisible things, the bare minimum that you need, the full minimum that you need, to be fully guilty before God for not repenting before Him. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world, notice the wording of the Holy Spirit, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Number one object, the sun. The number one object is the sun. That is why Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, talks primarily about the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God, and it goes on to describe that great light bulb that comes up in the morning and goes down at night, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a strong man rejoicing to run a race. The sun, a sunrise, like that sun. Do you go out in your backyard, front yard, side yard, or wherever the sun comes up, and look at that thing and say, Lord, thou art glorious. Because I want to tell you something, that is just a little token of his glory. And anyone with a mind, and that's the whole human race, knows that the glory of that sun 
and its properties of being just the right distance from us and just the right number of days. Aren't you glad that it goes down in 12 hours and doesn't go down every 36 hours? You wouldn't survive. You need that nighttime. He's done everything perfectly. Isn't the temperature just... It's a little cool this morning, but it's still just right. You know, everything is just right. We look at the sun, and there's God. The invisible things about God, His glory. How can He show His glory? He's an invisible spirit. Well, He gave us a little light in the sky. And you look at that, and it drives away all darkness, and it warms you, and it embraces you and kisses you on the cheeks when you stand in it, and it enlightens your eyes, and it gives you a whole new life every morning. A whole new life. To go out, to, to face a new day with the right attitude gives you a whole new life. They know there's a God from that. And they know that God is glorious. And they know that God has eternal power. And they know that that God has a Godhead. He has perfections. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He has honor. He has majesty because the Son is majestic. But they will not give Him that glory. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He does not live a short 70-year life like we do. He is incorruptible. He doesn't go away. He doesn't die. In fact, the Bible says He cannot die. He has eternal power. The power to create a light bulb like that, the light bulbs that men create go out in just about a thousand hours. Those little pieces of junk that we buy today, they go out so fast. I was thankful to be shown some light bulbs that were built a hundred years ago that are still shining today because they were built with filaments that just make the present filaments look kind of weak. But that was at Hubble Lighting, and that's another story for another time. Just forget the whole thing. Ask Tammy about it. But it's, it's a light bulb. And for God to make that thing so glorious, that affects us so much, there has to be a creator that much greater than it. Right. And men know that. Even His eternal power, it's not going away. It's been there. It doesn't matter whether you live or die. It doesn't matter whether you live 20 years or 70 or 100 years. The sun came up the day you were born, and the sun's going to come up the day after you die. Because it was created by an eternal being that put it there in the sky. And the earth is going to keep rotating around it because if this earth stopped, and we were held under the direct gaze of that sun and did not have the cooling effect of the night, we would be in trouble. We get to move around the sun. We get to spin all of it. Seasons, days, nights. Just like the Lord told us. Now the Lord told us so we know more details. But they're able to figure out that there is a God with eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The whole human race, especially the Gentiles, are without excuse before God. One more example before I quit. When God... When God wants to show Himself in His glory and His eternal power and His Godhead, He appeals to His creation. I want to give you an example from the Bible, and I want you to delight in it, just by thinking, oh yes, that's there. When a man had some horrible circumstances in his life, and his name was Job, when that man got a little confused, and a little pompous, and a little self-righteous about his life when God came to him in Job chapters 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. What did he talk about? Did he talk about the sun? Oh, yes. Did he talk about clouds? Oh, yes. Rain, snow, hail, ice, behemoth, leviathan, horse, Ostrich, whirlwinds, thunder, lightning, stars. Is that where the Lord went? That's where the Lord went with Job. Because there's value in that creation. You know, we have a horse in the church now. You ought to go watch that horse. You say, well, I like my five-speed Mustang. That's my horse. Ever seen the five speeds of a horse? Did you know that God gave them a five-speed gearbox? Now, I'm going to get outside my league real fast to close your ears. And if that other girl's listening, she better close her ears. They can walk. They can trot. They can canter. They can gallop. And they can run. If a racehorse was just galloping or if a racehorse was just cantering, he wouldn't get to the finish line before the sun set. But they know how to run, flat-out run. 
and canter, totally different gates, totally different movements of their feet. You want to talk about a five-speed gearbox? Go watch a horse. Go watch its little, those little tiny ankles. Those little tiny ankles holding up a 1,200-pound body. They do just right, fine, don't they? Very flexible. All of it, the horse. You like the mane in the horse? Why does that hair grow long there and not grow long everywhere else? How did that happen? The Lord said, don't you like it when it's moving and that thing's going up and down? Do you like a trained horse when it, fe- when it comes to battle? They can be shouting against it, and they can be blowing trumpets against it, and they can be clanging their swords against it, and a trained war horse will go straight into it. Does he swallow up the ground? Oh, the, the Lord just wants Job, just shut up. Just shut up and watch a horse. I made it. I made that horse. What'd that do to Job? I, I want to get into all the other ones, and you know I do, but I can't. What did that do to Job? I have heard thee by the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth mine, mine eye seeth thee. Did Job see God? He saw God's creation, and it was all he needed. I repent in dust and ashes. Praise the Lord. That's what we ought to do. When you go outside in the morning and that sun's shining through your windshield and you're getting upset because it's so bright you can't see the truck you're about to plow into, put your sunglasses on, pull the visor down, slow down, and praise God. Repent before God. Tell Him you love Him. Thank Him for that light in the sky. Thank Him that you know who created it and that you know His glory would make that thing look like a cold, dark stone if His glory were to be unleashed on this earth. He dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. I can go out inside my deck and look at that sun, not for long. But you can't. The Lord dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. Praise His glorious name. This is the God of Romans chapter 1. But the judgment and wrath of God is coming upon those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You know far more truth than is described in Romans chapter 1. May God have mercy upon us to hold that truth in righteousness. Righteousness all the days of our lives. Amen.